What's up, FinTech fans and taco lovers? It's time for another Taco Tech. Today, we are thrilled to welcome special guest Penny Phillips, the founder of Thrivos Consulting. Penny, thanks so Thank much for Thank you for having there. me, guys. I'm not even kidding. I just ate a taco. So there you go. This is a match made in <laughs> That's how you heaven. start the best day ever. You do just amazing work with advisors. Um, but in the event, we've got some listeners who aren't familiar with you. I thought it'd be great for you to start us off. Just tell us about your story, your history in the industry, and, and what led you to to get the inspiration to start Thrivos in the first place? Ooh, that's a loaded question. Okay. Yeah, so Thrivos Consulting, we're a practice management, coaching, and consulting organization. We work exclusively in financial services. So all day, every day, we're talking to advisors and institutions, especially in the broker-dealer space, about what's happening, what's changing, what the consumer wants. And ultimately, our goal is to help firms and advisors build bigger, more efficient businesses. So you can tell I've, I've said that, you know, a million times over the course of the last couple of years. So that's the pitch. Now, I, I started this company um, about four years ago now. And I, I think of it as really the culmination of all my experiences in the industry. I started out of school in the third party distribution side. So what we consider, you know, asset management or wholesaling. Um, for a subsidiary of New York Life. And to be honest with you guys, I really didn't love that job. I, I loved, you know, working with advisors. And I, I, it's it's such a great way to start in this business, I think. But for me, you know, I think two years in, I was like, okay, I'm done. And so um, at the time, there was a initiative that New York Life was putting together. And, and the crux of it was really answering this question of, we have really successful insurance agents, captive insurance agents who've done a phenomenal job selling products to the middle market. How do we get those guys, those salespeople, guys and gals, by the way, transition to become financial advisors, advisory oriented, doing financial planning? Looking back now, it was it, for me, it was like such an the, the answer is so obvious about why that transition was, was so difficult for agents. But uh, at the time, I guess, you know, the, they were sort of stumped on it. And so I joined the RIA subsidiary of New York Life called Eagle Strategies and was was tasked with really thinking about, like, how do we help the agents who want to evolve into advisors make that transition? And so by the time I left New York Life, um, I was running their practice management division, which was brand new and, and, and it had never been sort of done before. and had developed a program called Practice Management Solutions. And so um, it was a, a training program that helped advisors not just actually transition their business to be conducive to an, an advisory practice, but also help them shift behaviors and belief systems. And, and that was the key learning. And I think what really started my career in this space is that, you know, when we say practice management in this industry, it's 15% content and concept and 85% behavioral change. It's, it's the behaviors that we really have to help these salespeople change if we want them 
to think like CEOs and be advisors. And so um, I ended up leaving New York Life. I went to work at InvestNet in consulting. I, I worked at an independent coaching company for a little bit and then ultimately joined Thrivos because I, I really am passionate about this work and and wanted to have ownership over you know the outcomes and 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 the overall end product. I love that story about New York Life because this might blow your mind, but and I know we connect on so many other levels, but I think this is another connection that I too worked at New York Life, and I was in charge of doing that practice management training for the Northern California office. Oh my god! So yeah. I know, right? So crazy. Uh, so I think it's just so crazy how. As big as our space can be, it is also very, very small and how we all are connected in some sort of way. So I think like that, I just wanted to say that because I think it's really cool that our, you know, people don't think that, you know, our financial space is huge and it's really, it's really not like we, we all end up um, kind of connecting in some way or another. Totally. Yeah. And, and the insurance BD space, particularly Tori, is it's, it's large, but really small and yeah, everyone sort of knows everybody. And it's an interesting space. It's an interesting part of the industry that not many people focus on. But but we, we, we find it interesting. Speaking of advisors and trying to figure out, you know, what they need and what they want, what are some of the common pitfalls you see that advisors are doing that really start to wreak havoc on their businesses, um, especially, you know, in today's market, like we were, I think we can all officially say 2020 was an bonkers year. Um, what did, what was kind of the overall theme, um, that you saw with advisors and needing some help or coaching through? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I may, I may be the only one who was saying this year, like publicly on presentations that th yes, this year is an anomaly in so many ways and we've learned so much, but yet we've really learned nothing new as consultants, meaning like all the themes and behaviors and things we've always seen advisors do, it's basically, this, it's been the same thing this year. The, the ones who are most able to adapt and evolve literally on a daily basis, meaning they're, they're comfortable being uncomfortable daily. Those are the advisors who did really well this year, meaning they were able to you know shift and get on Zoom and be virtual and treat this year differently. The advisors who have trouble adapting or the advisors who either stagnate or, or you know, sort of um, I, I, in some ways, you know, recognize that the, the world is moving and changing too quickly for them. So we already knew that going into this year, but I think in some ways 2020 exacerbated some of the problems that we tend to coach on to begin with. And I, I bucket those into two things, technology and demographics. So on the technology side, just really broadly speaking, and you guys know this being in the tech space, the the advent of technology and, and AI has shifted the what I call solopreneur advisors business model, meaning it's become really difficult for an advisor who's going at it alone to build a profitable business past a certain point. Like you generate revenue and 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 build it early on, you're fine, but then you naturally hit that that capacity wall. And, and because of technology, because it's it's becoming more um, expensive to run the business and, and the fact that prices have compressed, it's just, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult for advisors to scale and build independently. And I think many of them realize that this year, that being the solopreneur advisor sort of going at it alone 
um, is, is impossible. On, on that side of the house, what I've noticed is that the average advisor who grew up in a, in, in a sales culture, meaning they came from the insurance BD space or the wire space, some of them are great advisors, but not great business managers. Like they've never been taught the competencies that you need to run a P&L to, you know, make um, capital reinvestment decisions to hire and fire people. So all the core things that you need to run a business, they've never been taught that. So put them into a year like this, really, really challenging for some advisors to not just adapt, but also think like a CEO would in a tumultuous year. So that was exacerbated this year. And then the second big change factor is demographics. And I, I basically describe this as, you know, most advisors fit that profile, right? The middle-aged, you know, white male advisor. And I think it's very difficult for some of those advisors to connect with the Gen Y and Gen Z professional who is coming onto their team or who's going to be their successor. You know, they think succeed and act totally different from the senior advisor. And so just communicating and gelling and finding synergy with team members of a different demographic group, um, I think advisors really struggle with that, at least the ones that come to us for coaching do. Did you notice, and like you said, those Gen Zers and Gen Yers are coming into the market space at kind of a crazy time. And I think, you know, technology is at its all-time high with user ability, um, did you, did you see like these advisors are starting to feel that pinch that like these kids are kids with quotations are really like gunning for their jobs at this point, And they just feel like they're trying to hold on to as much as control as possible. So they weren't allowing that in, or do you feel like advisors are really starting to, because we were all remote and you had to come up with plan B of meeting with your clients virtually or that kind of thing. Um, you know, they were more willing to be flexible and listen to these younger people coming into their offices and, and chatting with them and um, saying, you know, hey, we can, you can move this all online or, um, you know, why don't you try using social as a way to connect with new people? It's, it's such a good question because I think, I think seeing this year that you, you can work virtually, people could work whatever hours they want and you'll still get the work done. Like the, I think there were some major learnings for people this year. Mm -hmm. The biggest challenge I see though, is not necessarily that advisors feel threatened. It's, and again, taking this from the coaching standpoint and what we do at Thrivos, yeah. everything is a mix of traditional consulting and behavioral coaching. Cause I'm, I'm far more interested in like what makes people act the way they act. Right. And so what I've noticed is that, Advisors who built the business from the ground up with like a hammer and nails and masking tape, they want, gosh, I hope people don't get you know upset at this, but but they want the younger gen to suffer the way they did in this business, like, yeah. you know? And and I think they get frustrated that they, the, the younger gen doesn't have it as hard to some extent as they did because there is no such thing as, you know, cold calling and, and door knocking anymore. Like there's do not disturb lists, right? Like you can't just cold call. Right. I think there's an element of like, there's a, there's a resentment factor and, and, you know, advisors often say, yeah, but you know, they're lazy and, and it's like, is it laziness or is it the younger gen has figured out a different way to be as successful faster. And I think that's a really difficult statement to sort of unravel with some of these teams that we work with. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting too, like you said, like they want yeah. 
the younger gens to suffer a little. <laughs> um, but I, my, my motto is always like works smarter, not harder. Yeah. Um, and so like, I think a lot of those kids have that mindset at this point, like they have had a lot thrown at them. Like, if, I mean, if you just look at our generation, I mean, we, as a generation, you know, high school was nine 11. And then, you know, the first couple of years that we were out of college is, uh, the, the rise and fall of, you know, the market crash. Um, and now, you know, in our mid thirties, when we're, you know, some of us have small children, like we're trying to, you know, raise families and, and be successful in our biggest growth years during a pandemic. So I think our generation in general has been thrown so many loops that we have just gotten to the point where it's like, we've got to figure out how to do this smarter and more efficiently because we don't know what's coming next at us. If you look at the reality of what our, just our, our work cycle has had, um, you know, we've, we've, as a generation have had a lot thrown in our way. And um, I think, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to dodge those as quickly as possible and still be successful um, is what, you know, they kind of look at us like, oh, you're just being, you know, lazy or you found found a shortcut. You know, advisors, many of the, the the baby boomer advisors grew up in a negative reinforcement culture, you know, that you were screamed at by your sales manager. If they, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't make it, you, you know, you were fired. And, and we, the younger gen, and we, we say kids jokingly, but Gen Y is in their mid thirties now. I mean, we're, I'm Gen Y yeah. and, um, and we grew up in a positive reinforcement culture. And that's the reality. And so I, I, the thing I share with advisors is the responsibility is on you to shift and adjust, not the younger gen, unfortunately, because they've only ever been raised in one type of society, a very different one than you were raised in. And so it's a, it's a really interesting part of practice management that I, maybe, maybe for us is the most exciting to work on. Continuing on that, that train of thought, you know, we've, you talked about kind of that shift to from the the older generation to the, the next generation of advisors and how that's taking place within firms and and I think succession and and the need for succession planning is that's one trend going throughout the industry but what are some trends that you're seeing in the in the industry at large that are like really energizing Ooh, you. Energizing right now. me. Well, I, you know, ener energizing is a strong word. I, I'm maybe not energized, but I'm interested to see how advisors address the issue of the consumer right now is being forced to make a choice between lowest cost or highest value in the financial services space, meaning yeah. go to bed and pay, you know, 10 basis points or mm -hmm. work with this advisor and pay a fee for a plan and then, you know, AUM fee on top of that. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see advisors get creative with the way in which they charge for advice. You know, we, just with some of the clients mm -hmm. we work with, the amount of work they do for clients is astounding. Um, and, and any, any advisor who says to me, well, you know, being an advisor is so easy. What do you have to do? You know, you just, you, you know, you put their accounts in a passage. It's like, if you're an advisor and an actual planner, you are basically 24 seven on call to answer any questions clients have about their lives. And I find, I, and I think people are willing to pay yeah. for having that ongoing advice and counsel and, you know, watching advisors leave transition away from the old old world, you know, BD model and go out on their own and creatively um, b 
build their services and fee structures. I'm, I don't know if I'm energized, but I'm, but I'm really interested in that. And I think <laughs> the mass consolidation in, mm-hmm. you know, the, the RIA space, the way we've seen in all other spaces in the business, then it's going to be interesting to see who wins, you know, the, the consolidation battle, if you will. Um, so both of those things I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing over the next couple of years. With, with charging for advice, I'm fascinated by the advisors who are trying to pivot to yeah. a subscription idea, which isn't in practice all that different from the AUM fee, but it's a very different conversation and a different narrative that you create in your client's mind. So what do you think is is that pathway forward in terms of that charging yeah, I, you know we advice. get this question all the time and it's there isn't a, there really isn't a blanket answer and it, it's funny you say this because i tried to write an article for a publication on this and i found that i wasn't really giving a solution i was giving sort of so many different ideas i i, I do think the reality is we know that asset management fees have compressed obviously but if you look at the data around advisor fees overall, they actually haven't come down, which indicates that some advisors have done a good job telling a client, look, we charge you 1%, but that's representative, not just of, you know, the, the, the assets we manage, but of everything we do for you. Um, my, my advice for advisors mm-hmm. is, first of all, you have to make sure that the services you provide, the time that you're, which, which really is your time, right? The time that you're spending servicing clients um, across every single client segment is profitable. Meaning if you're having a conversation with a lower tier client three times a year and that client's generating $100 in revenue to the firm, you're not profitable on that client. So my, my first piece of advice is always really understand the margins on the business. This is an advisor's biggest blind spot in my opinion and, and in my work. And what I would say is if you are having... If clients are starting to ask questions, if you're having trouble with keeping your fees where they're where they're at just on the AUM fees, it does make sense to introduce this subscription-based service for your lower tier clients who still want access to an advisor and you know maybe don't have the assets to to be able to pay for that advice. Do you think profitably serving those maybe those smaller portfolio clients? Is bolting on a like robo solution onto a traditional advisory form, advisory firm, is that a viable kind of business line addition for advisors? It's kind of something that's always talked about, and and I don't know that really gains traction yeah. with a lot of firms. The bigger firms have had total flops yeah. with, with it. Mm-hmm. They're trying it. And I think it's for a couple of <laughs> reasons. I think. And again, we can get into the whole conversation about like everything wrong with the BD space, but um, it, it, I think it's, it's really another time, Penny. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not but, no, but but I think the, the the thinking is right, the intent is right, but but the reality is is that like giving a somebody access to a rope. First of all, like the marketplace is really saturated. Secondly, the challenge is not. Mm-hmm. You know, the advisor, the client assets, the challenge is if you say to a client, hey, look, we have this great robo and based on your asset level, it's 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 more efficient for you to just use it. The client is still going to be calling the advisor with questions about, hey, should I apply for PPP? And, and you know, 
my my kid is thinking about you know taking a loan mm-hmm. out for, like that's the stuff that eats up time and so whether you're offering the robo or not the, the client still wants advice from an actual professional human and so i don't find that it's been particularly right um a, a particularly successful exercise at some of these bigger firms you know i talk about this a lot on social media we're we're an industry that's obsessed with defining success the way success was defined 40 years ago, you know? And I think not only has the consumer changed Mm -hmm. by consuming client changed the way they define success, but advisors have too. like, you know, and what I mean by that is we're, we're obsessed with like getting, getting to the billion in assets and, you know, the $5 million client. And, the truth is there's tons of other people out there who need advice and guidance, arguably more so than the bigger clients from an advisor and just don't have, you know, access in our model um, right now in the industry. And so it, it's an, indus- an interesting conundrum. We are measuring the wrong things or it might not necessarily be wrong, but it doesn't capture everything great that's happening. Um, so like you said, like landing that, that whale of a client or, um, you know, hitting, you know, X amount of dollars under AUM, like that, that's all great and wonderful for those firms that are able to do it. But like these smaller RAs are still making a great impact in the space um, and a great impact into those clients' worlds. You know, maybe they are taking on those smaller clients, but those smaller clients, you took a chance on them now. And when they are able to, they're going to stick with you for the long haul because you were there first. And I don't think people understand the importance of Mm -hmm. building a relationship. And I know I hammer that a ton of a ton, but just because a relationship isn't paying you in dividends now, it potentially and probably will pay you 10 times dividends down the road. Um, Whether that is an introduction to someone that you need or, you know, they actually start doing business with you. So you know, growing and maintaining those relationships is always huge. And I think a lot of people just see like, oh, that, you know, as a, as a, it's a deficit on the, on the budget planner right now. Right. So we can't, we can't put any time or effort into it. Um, and those are the types of relationships that you want to be growing. Um, you don't want them to just sit there because someone else is going to take time to nurture that, that relationship. And then you're going to miss out. And exactly. And it's, and it, the person who's going to do that is the person that has flexibility in the way they can charge fees. And, and that's what yep. it comes down to. It's the, the, you know, we call them the Henry's, the high earners, not yet rich, you know, it, that's everybody's target at all these firms. They want those clients for the long haul. The, the, and, and I think the, the advisors who, who can't go to those clients and say, Hey, look, Like we're going to charge you a fee for advice and and you can reach out to us and we're going to have a relationship with you and see you through your, you know, business life cycle. The advisors who can't do that because they're constrained by compliance or whatever firm they're with, those are, those are the advisors that I think long-term are going to have a hard time. So Mm -hmm. as we always wrap up one, one of these um, podcasts was some of our favorite guests. We always ask um, hot takes on tacos. Johnny and I, you know, definitely stand in, in the camp of, you know, Tacos are our life. Penny, tell us where you stand. I know you said you had a taco before you started this conversation with us. So I feel like we're on a winning streak. I yes, I did from a mm-hmm. place called Taco Azul in Queens, New York, which is the best. Um, they are life, but pizza's number one, and I'm never gonna waver on that. 
if that's I can get behind that too. I honestly can't. I can get I can get down with that. Oddly enough, you could fold a pizza <laughs> like a taco. So nope. yeah, really winning. Hey, so tell us, uh I mean, New York. Yeah. What's what's your favorite oh my pizza? Gosh. What's your favorite pizza place out there? Gosh, there's so many. Uh Cascarinos is like a the best local spot there's gino's gino's is awesome i like a traditional you know new york slice and so i'll be honest i haven't had a sl bad slice of pizza in new york city and i you know i i i, I stand by that i need to go with you then <laughs> i've never had a pizza in new york <laughs> yeah, i love you can tell i'm so we passionate both about do, this clearly. i'm like my voice is getting deeper and stronger <laughs> yeah. yes we appreciate that passion, whether it be for tacos or pizza. It's, you know, the passion for food is right up my alley. Oh, yeah. All right, everybody listening, hit that subscribe. Make sure that you catch up with Taco Tech every week. We'll see you soon. <laughs>